that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I am the editor-in-chief of the North American Anglican online journal. Please check us out at northamanglican.com. And today I am joined after our extremely long absence, for which we are very apologetic, by Father Isaac Rayberg. Father? Hi, this is Father Isaac Rayberg. I'm the rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, uh, the canon for liturgy in the Diocese of the West of Cana. And I just became one of the editors, although I have not done much in editing. So I apologize for that. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm sure you'll pull your weight eventually, Father. It's not as though one you've of these days. <laughs> been a longtime contributor to the journal for, for many years. So, so that is appreciated appreciated. Um, well, we're uh, recording here at uh, a strange time. It's a strange time to be um, alive, I feel like, um, yeah. in some ways. And uh, we're, we're podcasting in the time of coronavirus, which um, as of March 31st, not to date this podcast too much, but hey, why not? Um <laughs> We're approaching on Holy Week, and it has been a more severe Lent than I think most of us were quite anticipating, wouldn't you say, Father? Yeah, and I've seen some great memes to that effect about I never <laughs> <laughs> intended on quite giving up this much for Lent, or this is the most Lent I've ever Lented, or all the other sorts of things good, like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's... It's an odd one. I um, it, unprecedented, I guess we could say. Uh, the, yeah. the comparison keeps being uh, made to Spanish flu back in World War One, um, as sort of the the more recent um, similar instance. Uh, it, here in Omaha, Nebraska, I remember being a student at Creighton University. Uh, they have a memorial to uh, the Spanish flu in the Jesuit gardens there, which is quite pretty. Uh, and it's this cool uh, statue of Christ. And uh, they're giving thanks that, um, that no one from the, Je- from the uh, Creighton community had, had died of the Spanish flu. And um, it, there are a lot of politics that, of course, are corresponding with this uh, unfortunate state of affairs and uh, people who think that it's maybe being overblown and people on the other side who think that maybe uh, others aren't doing enough or taking it seriously enough. Um, any hot takes on that, Father Isaac? Um, yeah, I was I was actually um, on pilgrimage in the Holy Land when it first started to make headlines. And, you know, we all 
we actually made up uh, um, a silly song about washing hands for it that became kind of a theme of our pilgrimage. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, we, 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 we certainly didn't expect it to, to get like this. And, you know, that those early, those early events were kind of like, Oh, come on now. This, this is, you know, typical of our, our media causing sure. and stuff. But then it turns out it, it really was, you know, it was really is pretty bad, <laughs> right. really bad. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, we need to be reasonable. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we, and, uh, yeah, be, be reasonable. And sometimes it's really hard to be reasonable in today's, uh, uh, media and, and political environment, unfortunately. Right. Um, you know, one of the disadvantages of everyone being quarantined is I think everyone's on Facebook and social media a lot more. And, uh, you know, I, I had this thought the other day of, can you imagine, um, if your opinions about the world at large were solely or almost so, uh, formed by what you're seeing on your Facebook stream. And then I realized this is probably true for many people. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very, so, very scary stuff. Right. You know, and I think at the end of the day, um, there, there's been a lot of discussion on how the church should react. And obviously the church, um, has to react. There've been some laws on against meeting of a certain amount of people. And, uh, some people have said, look, the church needs to lead out and show that their love for neighbor is even higher than everyone else by not going and meeting and endangering people. And there have others that have said that we should have more faith and that this is a test of faith. And, um, we should therefore, you know, even consider practicing perhaps uh, civil disobedience in order to meet and uh, celebrate Holy Communion or church services and the like. Um, Father, you've had, uh, you've been, as a pastor, you've had to deal with uh, exactly this question. Um, what's, what, what have been some of the considerations that you've uh, taken into account? Well, we had we had a bit of a timeline. Um, you know, as 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 I said, I was actually out of the country when this started to really make headlines uh, stateside, and so we're kind of following things on our Facebook feeds, of course. You know, while we're sitting on the tour bus, going to follow our Lord's steps, and mm-hmm. um, you know, three of us were that were on the pilgrimage were um, our, our rectors, and we had to think, okay, what are we going to do? Um, because we started to see at that time it would they were just kind of suggestion guidelines coming out and so for the first week um which was literally the two days after i got back um without really having time to figure this out in in any better way we said okay we'll, we'll give communion but the options are going to be um me as the priest and tinct and you receive it on the tongue or you just take the bread in the hand you know, kind of, kind of going to a more, um, traditionally Catholic approach. I know our, our sure. kind of Latin mass folks, that's how they always do it here in town. Not, not that we look to them for our guidance, but it's, but you know, if, if you do it right as a priest, I can tell you, you're not going to touch them if you do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as much as it's kind of counterintuitive, that's actually, 
um, a lot when it comes to kind of passing on germs by touch, that's going to be really easy, cleaner than just about any other way we administer communion. So that was the first week. And then the second week, the bishop uh, basically said, you either have to do individual cups, um, which which to me was just, we're just not going to do that. Um, you know, we don't have individual cups anyway, and it's just a logistical nightmare. Right. Or, um, or you know, you have to uh, basically do it in one kind. And so we did it in one kind. Um, not ideal. You know, we, we certainly lamented some of the theological implications of that. And by the third week, we were, um, you know, public public worship was suspended both um, uh, citywide, statewide, and also diocese-wide. So um, we have not done communion um, live streamed. We've we've stuck to um, morning prayer. Uh, sometimes we've added anti communion. Um, usually the litany, um, and and largely because we do have a tradition as Anglicans of not having to have communion every time. A lot yeah. of people don't realize that, but we do have that tradition. That is a, a very interesting point. Uh, I agree. There's uh, the um, sort of uh, the communion movement, uh, which sort of was part of the liturgical renewal uh, movement of the last century, ha has really made uh, weekly communion uh, pretty normative, even in, uh, in most Protestant circles. Uh, where, as you said, the Episcopal Church and in Anglican settings, um, there's a, a long history of, you know, um, morning prayer can be the principal Sunday service also. Right. Um, which, yeah, as you said, is sort of uh, forgotten or historically uh, neglected. Now, I'm of the opinion that uh, m Holy Communion every Sunday is, is great. But uh, I think that we, it's good for us to remember that it's not uh, a necessary uh, part of our piety, that we're not in some way sort of uh, being sub-Christian if we do without. Right. And I, and I, and I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but I, I do think there are some areas where we have lost part of our... Um, Anglican patrimony, as it were, by um, that nigh universal move to to communion being the service on Sundays, uh, much to the to the neglect of of other parts of our heritage, which are um, very very important and very edifying. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, especially in times like this. Yeah, um, in one way. I think uh, I've reflected just as a as a father with who now has um, to do his work at home. I have a wife who's now working from home, and I've got both kids at home from school. They're homeschool kids now, uh, you know. <laughs> and um, and in a way, I've really looked at this sort of forced quarantine as an opportunity to reevaluate sort of what we're doing as a family and how our action is reflecting our values, what we believe and what we hold dear. 
And I think in some ways, the same kind of reevaluation and it, th- this can be, um, if we treat it right as the church, an opportunity to reevaluate some of these uh, assumptions and, you know, certain habits of behavior that were maybe appropriate in one time, but um, are perhaps we need to understand what's essential and what's not and yeah. make that distinction. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate to have two services um, every Sunday at All Saints. And um, while, while another, neither service is particularly packed, you know, it's, it's, there's enough attendance between the two that going down to one wouldn't be practical at all. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the way I inherited it was two, two Holy Communion services. And I'm not sure how long that's been going on, but I, I do believe that it was my predecessor who, um, and he was he was the rector for about twelve years, um, who did expand it to two services and did move to to Holy Communion every week. My understanding it and this is again a little bit of a rabbit trail for parish history. They were doing Holy Communion less often, largely because they didn't have um, the resident clergy. There was there was typically in in the past one priest who was covering several parishes and so he couldn't be at every parish every week um so so yeah so my understanding is that move is within you know the last 15 years uh, 15 20 years for us but you know if if i had if i could kind of go back in time and give advice i probably would advise one service to be morning prayer and one to be holy communion so that mm-hmm. we wouldn't lose that morning prayer connection uh, and I've really enjoyed kind of kind of uh, getting that connection back, um, even if it's been kind of virtual. Although I know our people and and I have missed doing communion as as a regular part of the parish life. Of course, of course. Well, maybe um, those who are in your uh, congregation who are enjoying the uh, prayer, the morning prayer services online, will. Uh, will want to uh, keep that going into the future. Um, yeah, we may, we may figure out a way to do that without kind of depriving regulars. Because, you know, you always have that when you have two services. Some folks only come to one or only come to the other. Right. So, without, yeah, without depriving either group. We, so that's, it's something I've thought about. So hmm. no, no decisions made. Any vestry members listening, don't, uh, don't, don't get mad yet. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing has been done. Uh, sorry, uh, that's, that's me just getting you into trouble. Uh, right. <laughs> it's been talked about, though. <laughs> speaking of uh, online services, church services online, uh, there was a recent article by uh, Father Ben Jeffries on the North American Anglican called A Crisis of Communion, Implied Eucharistologies in the Midst of COVID-19. And uh, you read that one, uh, Father Isaac. It, he, uh, he's addressing some uh, issues or sort of considerations, maybe, that have been on my mind rec- you know, over the last week or two as I've seen uh, different friends sort of react to these realities in different ways. For instance, I had one friend, um, Facebook friend, so I don't you know, attend their church or know them personally, 
but they they had mentioned that uh, they've got a bishop in uh, and this is in a continuing jurisdiction. Uh, but they have a bishop who said, you know, we've been authorized to do uh, private masses, um, you know, in and this sort of implies a very specific uh, theology of what the uh, Eucharist is for and how and why it should be done and and how it can be properly done, etc. Um, but I think you know this article sort of gets into some of the uh, details of, you know, maybe the ways, different ways that people are um, approaching this crisis are betraying um, so some pretty radically different uh, Eucharistic theologies that maybe hadn't been apparent uh, back when everything was okay. Yeah, these are definitely some of the questions that that I was wrestling with in the early days um, before, you know, both on the local authority and ecclesiastical authority level, some of them got taken away. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, sure. these these are these are really good questions. Um, and, and I think it, it does speak to just some of the way that that unfortunately our, our theology is a little bit all over the place as a as a as a denomination right now. Um, not the first time that's happened. You know, we're not the only ones who have that problem. But but yeah, we certainly are not um, all on the same page with some of these things. Right. Um, and, you know, we aren't necessarily going to be on the same page with Father Jeffries here. So right, I right. just think he kind of, uh, you know, he lays out the uh, several issues that are at stake pretty well. And uh, I was thinking, since he gives... Uh, four different Eucharistologies, in his word, uh, that he considers to be un-Anglican. Um, maybe I'll read this first one, uh, which I think will uh, <laughs> may touch home for you, Father. Oh, so yeah. So I'd love to read this first one and kind of get your your take on it, and then maybe uh, we can switch sides and uh, you can read the next one. How's that sound? Sounds great. Okay, um, so he says one view that he considers to be particularly un-Anglican is, quote, the Eucharist should be administered under one kind only, and that's bread, end quote. And uh, to read the article here, it is the case that in the risen body of our Lord, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, his glorified body is inextricably connected with his... Uh, blood is in, in, inextricably connected with his glorified body, pardon, that mutatis mutandis for his unique resurrected state, blood cannot exist outside of a body, and a body is made alive by the presence of blood. Therefore, to receive communion under one kind is not unreasonably put forward as still being a full participation in the sacrament and the thing it signifies, Christ himself. However, the withholding of the cup is one of the chief developments in medieval worship that so rankled the reformers. It actually gets in its own article, Article 30, in our Articles of Religion. And he quotes the article here, The cup of the Lord is not to be denied to the lay people, for both the parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandment ought to be ministered to all Christian men alike. 
And he continues, this was one of the great gifts of the Reformation bequeathed to our Anglican Church, and it should perhaps not be set aside so lightly. We know that practice, practical considerations initially prompted the withholding of the cup in the Middle Ages. Mustaches were apparently a big factor. Whoops. Um, and who knows if pestilence wasn't also a factor. Even before germ theory, animal in instinct causes us to be repulsed by putrid fluids, such as those which emanate from a sick person. Either way, the congregation got used to it, and all manners of clericalist, superstitious pseudo-theology rose up in the wake of the practical action. Indeed, the tridentine line of argument as to the sufficiency of communion under one kind as it pertains to our salvation is the genetic descendant of these errors and has been used uncritically to justify the action in the present day. Um... Additionally, as Article 30 directs, since our Lord instituted both kinds, we should not be so cavalier to assert that both kinds are not fundamental to the sacrament, but may, they may not be, but we should be more cautious and not rush in where angels fear to tread. Lastly, the most careful theological doctors of all time, the Salamanca divines, discern that there is an additional gift of grace annexed to participation in the cup. That, a spirit, that of spiritual gladdening. Um, and he quotes Vasquez and Pusey uh, to support that claim. And that's, that's about the long and short of it there. Um, well, I've got some thoughts, Father, but I'd like you to mm -hmm. go ahead and respond first. Yeah, and, and he, he has a concluding sentence that, that I do think is important to the argument, which is, um, it would seem more prudent to encourage the frail to abstain from the chalice for health's sake rather than to withhold it. Um, and, and, and I agree with that conclusion. I really do. Um, that, that because, and, and I'm not, I'm not 100% um, sure on some of the kind of the way the logic unfolds um, uh, that father, father Jeffries did. And it's not, it's not that I disagree with, that necessarily as much as it's touching on some stuff that I'm just not really as familiar with. Um, but you know, the, the way that, the way that we put it to our, our people that first week when, um, abstaining was an option for them rather than it being, um, withheld from them, uh, which, which was more ideal in my opinion, um, was, you know, okay, you're not just getting half of Jesus. If you get, if you only partake of the body. And everybody laughs and, you know, and, but, but I mean, that, that's really the kind of the point theologically, uh, is that you're not only getting half of the sacrament. Um, and I don't think that our reformers issue with it was the kind of thing that led to in, in those weeks when we could do it, uh, withholding the cup. They weren't thinking in terms of health issues. They were thinking in terms of the clericalism, right. which is a problem, you know, and I, and I do agree that's a problem. Um, but what do you do when your option is no communion or communion in one kind? Mm -hmm. And, you know, or your third option being um, in complete rebellion to your ecclesiastical authorities over something that's not unreasonable. Um, insist on doing something that you shouldn't. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, 
I mean, certainly these are trying times, and um, I I think I, one thing I liked about Father Jeffrey's uh, article is he doesn't really go out of his way to um, to blame or to right. sort of say. And if you came to this conclusion, you're a dummy. You know, I mean, he, he's really he's pretty pretty sympathetic to the fact that hey, we all had to figure this out pretty quick, like yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, my take to yours is similar. I don't, you know, have the uh, familiarity with what Vasquez said or, you know, I can't go and, and uh, check all his, um, his references here. Uh, I think he, it, this is one of those arguments that sort of seems to have two levels, though. I would say there's the issue of whether or not it's the Eucharist right, theologically, if it's only in one kind. And then there's the issue of whether or not doing this, this practice in one kind leads to superstitious or heretical views of the sacrament. Right. And so I think those are kind of the two different considerations. He, he seems to say, well, we don't necessarily know that it is or it isn't. We, we don't want to go where angels dare tread, dare not tread. But um, at the same time, you know, he, he seems to say, or at least be open to the fact that, well, maybe it is, but it could, it could lead to some, some problematic misunderstandings of, of the Eucharist. And I think if that were the case, if we could know for sure that, look, this is Holy Communion, it's not less than, um, and it's not, you know, going to offend the Lord, uh, then, you know, this idea of, well, people might misunderstand it. To me, I, I just think that that's more of a sort of uh, a time-sensitive consideration. You know, maybe it just means you have to take the time to explain it. And, right. and I would say the same sort of thing about, you know, like... You know, Anglican churches with beautiful images and their stained glass windows. You know, like, should we go through and break those out? Like, no, I don't think, you know, my opinion on that is uh, people are, unlike in the late Middle Ages, people are sort of more literate and they're not sort of putting uh, a mystical importance in these images in Anglican churches. For the most part, I mean, I, I, you know, there's always like some sort of, uh, you know, off the rails Anglo-Catholic who is gonna basically do whatever they want, I suppose. But um, uh, I don't think that's the the big issue. I think the other issue, the the bigger issue of our society is non-belief altogether, not right. a superstitious belief in in the pictures in stained glass. So. And we do have, in, in our particular Anglican context, we do have some precedent for this in extraordinary circumstances. Um, and the, uh, in particular, the ones that, that gets trotted out most often are alcoholics who can't trust themselves with even that small sip of wine. Hmm, interesting. Or missionary contexts where there is no wine. You're in a place where they don't do that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so we have in both of those situations, um, in the first one, it is really encouraging that layperson not to partake um, rather than withholding it from them. And in the second one, it is it's not available. So you have to withhold. 
And there has been, I've, I've been told, I haven't been able to track this down, but I have been told that um, in, in, the, in the latter part of the 20th century, we did have another instance where um, because of uh, infectious disease in the Church of England, they, they, they banned it for a very small amount of time. Um, but, but again, I wasn't able to track down references, so that may have been I, 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 you know, I, I can't be sure that actually has happened um, for sure in the past. Hmm. No, those are those are good considerations. Um, yeah. So, so there may be precedent to this practice. Um, yeah. Not that it's not that it should be encouraged or is normative. Absolutely right. not. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think the way I phrase it to my parish the week that we had to do it was. Right now, this seems to be the least worst option we have. <laughs> and those are the kinds of things that choices that uh, people have to make in certain circumstances. So, yeah, yeah. Um, this is kind of a, a good presenting uh, situation for us to think through these things. Well, Father, do you want to read this next one? And I, I realize it's a little bit longer than mine was. So uh, you can summarize, too, if... if uh, you think that's helpful, but this does sure. deal with the issue of spiritual communion, which a lot of my Roman Catholic friends have been talking about recently online. So I'd love to get this one unpacked. So yeah, the, uh, the title of this section is God gives the same grace without the sacrament as he does through it. And the opening paragraph says, if the previous direction is underwritten by Romish doctrine, this rationale for shutting down the sacraments is reformed to a degree that is not reflected in our Anglican formularies. And then he, he, he gives some quali qualifications saying, um, he, he quotes um, Article 19 of the Consensus uh, Trigurinus that says, as the use of the sacraments will confer nothing more on unbelievers than if they had abstained from it, nay, it is only destructive to them. So without their use, believers receive the reality which is there figured. Um, but... Um, there, you know, there, there is again, um, you know, that spiritual communion thing. Um, and, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm just kind of summarizing here. We have kind of two approaches to that. One is the rubric from the communion of the sick in the 1662. Um, and, and I, I want to point out actually that that rubric, um, Jeffrey doesn't say this, but I, I was researching that rubric um, weeks ago as I had to prepare a report for the bishop. Um, and that rubric was actually present from 1549 until the liturgical revisions of the, of the late 20th century. So every, wow. every edition of the classical prayer book has this in the communion of the sick, every single one of them. Um, so this is the rubric. Uh, it's, it's kind of towards the end of the communion of the sick. But if a man, either by reason of extremity of sickness or for want of warning in due time to the curate or for lack of company to receive with him or by any other just impediment do not receive the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, the curate shall instruct him that if he do truly repent him of his sins and steadfastly believe that Jesus Christ hath suffered death upon the cross for him and shed his blood for his redemption, earnestly remembering the benefits he hath thereby, and giving him hearty thanks, therefore, he doth eat and drink the body and blood of our Savior Christ profitably to his soul's health, although he do not receive the sacrament with his mouth. And so, um, yeah, F Father Jeffries goes on to um, 
talk about how this is an intention with um, some parts of the catechism regarding the outward invisible sign and the inward spiritual grace as well as the benefit. And um, so he, he has this paragraph where he says, the distinction between the inward part and the benefit suggests a more realist notion of the presence of Christ in the sacrament faithfully received as res, a ghostly substance, uh, to use the language of the homilies, which brings with it certain benefits. When the rubric for the communion of the sick asserts that the body and blood of the Lord are eaten profitably, this indexes most clearly onto the third question of the catechism, the benefits of partaking. In the very least, the rubric does not make a direct identification with the actual reception of the sacrament as the Reformed confessions do. Indeed, when we compare the Anglican and Reformed thought on this question, it seems that there is there is a near equivalence between a Reformed view of communion and what Anglicans and Catholics would call spiritual communion. That is, in both cases, the doctrine is that the virtues and benefits of the cross of Christ are imparted to the soul independent of sacramental reception. But this is a subordinate idea of participation in communion for Anglicans, not the main idea. Um, and so basically he's saying it's this is a good thing, but it's not as good as receiving communion um, in terms of receive, receiving it um, physically, you know, partaking with, with the mouth as the, right. uh, as the rubric says. Yeah. I think, I mean, and that, it, it seems to me like, um, and, and I'd be interested to know, you know, how he, uh, or where his uh, information of interpreting the reformed view as saying there's no difference. Um, because I'm not, you know, that, that's news to me if that is the case. Um, and, and I could, you know, he could be right. I just, it's surprising. Um, and, and it seems to me that, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're able to have some spiritual benefit to, you know, uh, meditating on what Christ has done for you and that in a way it sort of approaches the sacrament, but it's not, the sacrament it's not right it's it's not equal to what happens in the sacrament then it's hard to argue how that wouldn't be the case right when when yeah. when roman catholics are able to go back to communion they're not going to say oh well i have uh, i've been doing spiritual communion and it turns out this is 100% the same so I don't need to do that anymore. Like I just, I just don't see that happening. I don't see that happening at Reformed churches either. And I don't think anybody has thought that. It seems like that that's kind of um, Father Jeffrey's concern is that the way it's been presented in some circles has made it sound like um, it's just as good. But I don't think anybody actually thinks that. Right. So maybe he's I mean, uh, nipping it in the bud, if as it were. Yeah, that could be. And yeah. And, you know, I, I likened it to because um, this is, you know, and again, one of those things that I in the report I had to do for our diocese, um, I, I discussed and I talked about with my parishioners. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not as good, but it's kind of similar to how we recognize a baptism of desire or a baptism of blood. You know, the thief on the cross is not um, damned because he didn't get baptized, you know, right. and, and um, the martyrs who like, oh, gosh, was it St. St. Ambrose who who um, took the place of the of the 
the the missionary that was supposed to be executed, he was a pagan soldier and like converted on the spot and got executed mm. instead. I think it was St. Ambrose. I, I could be getting my, my Celtic saints mixed up. But um, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he wasn't damned, you know, because he had it in that, you know, hour or whatever, didn't have time to get baptized. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I, and, I and nobody sees that as the case. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's in like the previous example, um, there's the the concern that a, a non normative practice done in you know, unusual circumstances might be considered to be as good as norm, the normative. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in both cases, we can easily agree that, no, nope, uh, that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, why don't I read this uh, next section, uh, which is... A lot shorter. A lot shorter. <laughs> I've, been, I've been getting the easy way out here, Father. That's right. You, you have a good reading voice, so the, the listeners will appreciate this, I'm sure. Oh, goodness. Thank you. <laughs> um, so so the, the issue he hopes to address here is the sacramental body can be delivered to parishioners independent of the Eucharistic celebration. This is an interesting one, and uh, I'm not sure if he make. I don't see him making the correlation directly here, but uh, this, I would say, is related to the um, drive-up Eucharist that maybe we've yeah. been seeing uh, on online. And, you know, I've seen several Anglican priests sort of doing this, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not here to say that absolutely can't be done, uh, but maybe, you know... Let, if we read uh, Father Jeffrey's considerations here, we may want to uh, think about how that might be done the, in the most profitable way. Because I think there, there's definitely a, a way that would be less beneficial and potentially um, kind of put you in error here. But let me read what Jeffrey says. Uh, While the bringing of reserved sacrament from an earlier celebration of the Eucharist in keeping with patristic era practice has been normal in the Anglican church for a century or so. Uh, good point here, by the way, is that this was probably reintroduced by the Tractarian movement and would not have been necessarily kosher uh, prior to that. But um, yeah, With a couple of exceptions. Yeah, yeah. well, in that, yeah, I, I'd love to, you know, unpack some of that too here, so... Um, but he, going on, he says, it has always been a permission for the sick, not the norm for Sunday mornings. By making it a norm, its disproportional emphasis became untenable, or emphases become untenable. There seems to be an underlying sacerdotalism in the very idea that the priest saying Mass is what effects the confecting of the Eucharist, and that the transformed elements can then be delivered to those who did not participate in the liturgy. But participation is crucial, not only because it is the vouchsafed way the church has given us to be duly prepared for the reception of Holy Communion, but also because the liturgy is the work of the people, not just the work of the priest. It takes a priest and a congregation in order for the church to be constituted, and only then can the Eucharist take place? To totally sever participation 
from reception will almost certainly lead to more unworthy receiving and also communicates that the presence of the people of God is an optional element and incidental when it comes to the Eucharist, a medieval lie that was happily dismissed by the liturgical movement of the 20th century. Um, Once again, Father, I'm going to hand the mic to you and then I'll be happy to add my own thoughts. Yeah, I think um, we we do need to to definitely recognize that this was a, a, per, a patristic practice to reserve it for the sick, um, and I and I think there is a different. Um, it is different to you know reserve it for the sick versus reserving reserving it for um, some other other issues. Um, you know, I. I I'm not a big fan of benediction services. Um, I know that in in some Anglo-Catholic circles that would get me in trouble, um, and and I I don't I don't think they're a good idea, really. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Send, send send me your hate mail. I'm okay with that. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, so there's a difference I think between reserving it for the sick and reserving it for benediction. Um, and, and I'm trying to look for right now. There there was a discussion. Um, on uh, Father Hart's blog, uh, um, the continuum on his layman guide for the thirty nine articles, where they did discuss some some previous precedents in um, reserve, reserving for the sick within pre tractarian Anglican circles, and it seems Interesting. like, if I remember right, it was a particular localized thing. Like I believe it was in Scotland during the Caroline period a few bishops authorized that reserving for the sake of taking to, to, to the sick. Hmm. Um, and it seems that in the patristic time, it wasn't like you'd have a tabernacle where they would reserve it for the sick and then they'd take it throughout the week. It was more immediately after, um, mass, the deacons would go and take it to the sick and the shut-ins. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. That they would they would literally walk out of the service with the elements to go administer. Yeah. So, so in that way, it's there really isn't even like a a a time divorce from the the liturgy itself. It's it's you know immediately following. Um, right. Yeah. It's almost like an extension of the meal rather than. Um, yeah, left leftovers. I don't know. That's, it's, mm. That sounds so trite to say it like that. But. An aperitif. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> well, and you know, I, I don't know if it's it's. Uh, you know, I, I do think the table setting uh, sort of analogy is important to maintain in these Eucharistic uh, discussions, and you know, especially as uh, sort as the practice of Holy Communion sort of is a a. A development, but also a new thing that came out of uh, cer- certain uh, religious feasts of that Jews would have found familiar, um, but also it has this element of being the new altar, etc. But um, you know, I don't think it's. Uh, I mean, we we uh, in the liturgy we say we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table, you know, and mm-hmm. so it, I think some of that imagery is is useful, but. Uh, yeah, the the other obvious thing that this opens up the door for is, uh, and and Jeffries doesn't say it um, directly, but he implies 
is the issue over private masses, right? Yeah, not not a big fan. Um, I, I think that does get I think that does get addressed a little bit more in the in the next section, if memory serves. Um, oh, you know what? I think you're right. Um, yeah, but, but I, I, we we had talked about you know again in in our in our particular context. Um, uh, one of our one of our rectors brought up what about bringing pre-consecrated to our people Saturday night so that when we're live streaming, they can all partake. Um, and it has been consecrated kind of, you know, using LEMs and that sort of thing. Um, and, and it, and at least, at least among our folks, um, the bigger concern, which I thought, I thought was kind of interesting was less, um, whether or not this works within our theology, but more, how can we ensure that the people would um, treat the consecrated elements reverently? Hmm. Um, and then this idea that that you know to be to be if we can be honest, a lot of LEMs, lay Eucharistic ministers, aren't well trained themselves. How sure. can we expect kind of the, the the regular folks in the pews? I mean, through just just through no, not through any malice, but through no just for not knowing any better, you know, not, not to, not to do things in a way that would be considered disrespectful or possibly even sacrilegious. That's interesting. Um, you know, that reminds me in the, in the middle ages and really early modern Roman Catholicism, there was a huge, uh, sort of concern, uh, that sort of corresponded with the, the sort of scare over witchcraft was like, are there are there people who will go up to receive and then re will sort of fake or, you know, and try to kidnap <laughs> the host as it were, you know, and um, that's not something I'd even sort of cross my mind, but, you know, whether it be malicious or accidental, uh, there's, there's a reason why people were pretty careful about the administration of the sacrament. Um, I saw a, Interestingly, I saw a picture someone posted of like a 13th century Dominican sort of, and it was during the plague and there was some, some uh, sick person leaning out their window and the, the, the priest and his server helper was, had a long stick and they were sort of <laughs> guiding <laughs> with an extreme, I mean, a very long stick. This is longer than a selfie stick, guiding the host into their mouth. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I was like, well, that's one way. Uh, one, <laughs> what, one, yeah, one thought that crossed my mind is that in, in, uh, in Lutheran theology, one thing I'm sort of familiar with uh, in my contact with Lutheran friends is that they absolutely do not uh, permit the pre- uh, sanctified hosts to be administered. Every time uh, a Lutheran pastor uh, brings communion to the sick, he recites the service there with them in their sickbed. So um, that, you know, this is sort of a, an interesting, you know, and maybe that's just a place where Anglicans and Lutherans need to differ. But the, the um, prayer, the classical prayer book seems to um, endorse that. Um, hmm. The communion of the sick liturgies are not a reserved liturgy in the in the old prayer books. They're um, they're they're an abbreviated consecration, but they are a consecration. 
Yeah. Well, well that's so that's an, an interesting um, point. Uh, you know, apart from our difference with Lutheran brothers and, you know, sort of uh, Episcopal orders and other things, um, they tend to be very high on the uh, their view of the sacrament of Holy Communion. Right. And so, right. you know, it, it is interesting that they absolutely do not practice that at all. But, um, yeah, uh, well, let's save private mass maybe for the end here and, and sort of discuss what what might we might want to think about that. Uh, do you want to take this yeah. next uh, final section, Father? Sure. Uh, the Eucharistic liturgy can be live streamed. And so um, he says, the last direction dovetails on the previous. The problem with it is to mentally be in a place where your body is not, as is the case when you watch a live stream of church while sitting in your living room, is to be disincarnate from our embodied existence. Christ came in a real body. We are called as the church to worship in and with our bodies. Our Lord has promised that a gathering of as small as two Christians is sufficient to make church. There I am. Why watch someone else worshiping on on screen when you can worship with your spouse or kids or roommate? There is a strange and sneaky docetism at work in the idea of live streaming. The church presenting the illusion of presence via a screen while not actually being present. We worship the God who took on flesh for our sake. We would do well to worship him within the limitations of the flesh that he came to redeem. Moreover, to prioritize the seeing of the celebration of communion is eerily reminiscent of the ocular shift that took place in the mass in the 13th century, when just seeing communion celebrated replaced the actual receiving of the consecrated elements. Um, I'd say that I just kind of a parenthetically that does go back to the spiritual communion kind of from a more Roman Catholic perspective traditionally. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, uh, continuing, sorry, <laughs> uh, a mistake whose ripple effects linger on in the Romish language of hearing mass to describe going to church rather than participating in Holy Communion. The resemblance between live stream communion and the medieval Eucharistic errors can be further traced in the false assumption that as long as the priest celebrates communion, he does so for everybody, regardless of their level of participation. Surely such a ta- such a tacit assumption betrays a clericalism that should not be left unchecked additionally what exactly is the angel who guards each church supposed to do how can he gather the prayers of the scattered wow um i don't know what to make about that that me neither like uh, i don't i mean that's to me once again it's kind of like here's something that's sort of implicitly mysterious already i'm not sure i i need to figure out the math um it reminds me of the question of like, well, how can God hear everybody praying at once? You know, which uh, C.S. Lewis answers in uh, Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, like, golly, how could he figure it out? I don't know. It's, I mean, to some extent, <laughs> it's like, mm, it's supernatural, fella. But uh, at the same time, um, yeah, I, I really ag- kind of agree with this point. Um, and again, yeah. this is not me saying... Uh, everybody ought to cancel their live stream services. Um, but rather, you know, for instance, with my family, when we were unable to go to church on Sunday, our immediate response was to do what we've done in numerous situations in the past, either because we were in between churches or because we were on vacation and out of town and couldn't find a suitable place on Sunday morning, which is that 
I, as the minister of my household, uh, would lead my family in morning prayer. Um, And if you look at the family prayers at the back of the 1928 prayer book, there are some really helpful instructions on that kind of gives you an idea of what this uh, can look like. Um, We've been doing morning prayer during the week as well. So on Sunday, uh, we tacked on the litany at the end, um, sort of after the the three collects. Um, But this also reminded me of... um, or at least uh, to piggyback on Jeffrey's point of uh, you get church, you have church when two are gathered. Um, that kind of reminded me of the a prayer of Saint Chrysostom, which appears at the end of the office, uh, which goes, "Almighty God, who has given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications unto Thee." And as promised that when two or three are gathered together in thy name, thou wilt grant their requests, fulfill now, O Lord, etc. Um, so th- that reminder is placed at the end of the daily office, I think, for in part for this reason, um, to help people to understand that even though this is not a communion service, that this is indeed, uh, you know, godly work and, and church is happening here. Uh, what yeah. do you think? Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I mean, this it, it's not yeah, it's not holy communion, but it is communion of the saints, um, nonetheless. And um, I mean, yeah, that's that's why we we have not live streamed holy communion for that very reason. Um, once upon a time, we we did from time to time, largely for the sake of some of our members who had moved away and wanted to remain connected to the parish. Uh, what I discovered was that for a lot of those folks, watching All Saints virtually became an excuse not to plug into a local church. Wow, yeah. And so th- I stopped I stopped doing it for that very reason. And I mean, yeah, certainly, you know, I, I certainly think what we're doing is, is pretty special. But, you know, all, all, <laughs> all ministry is local. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so, so we stopped doing that, but, um, and you know, I, I almost wish that we didn't have to, you know, we're, we've been live streaming. I, I, either, either me by myself or on Sundays with, um, one of the assisting clergy and, and a postulant, um, we've been live streaming morning prayer, um, usually adding the litany on Sunday, um, and I, and I almost wish we didn't have to do that. It's, sure. it's, 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 it's almost a, um, testimony to some failures on our parts as pastors that we have not trained our people well enough to be able to do worship as their family. Hmm. So a teachable moment maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I think, uh, I, you know, without commenting on, on your context in particular, I, I do think that uh, it should be a goal of, you know, Anglican priests to, who, you know, to teach how to handle and manage the prayer book uh, with the laity and really teach them and kind of, you know, maybe have a couple people who are really just their discipline is to uh, pray the office daily at home 
And if you know that they're getting it and, you know, maybe they're lay leaders or maybe they lead, you know, morning prayer or evening prayer occasionally, then they could maybe instruct others. Uh, I just think it, it, it's definitely a laudable goal. And I think you're definitely going to get more mature believers in the pews if they have a good grasp on how to effectively use the prayer book, which is really sort of a, a spiritual manual for life. You know, if they can be getting the most out of it at home, I think, uh, you know, it's, it can only be a good thing. And I, I do want to address something that, that, that Jeffries doesn't with the live streaming of, of communion. Um, you know, I, I heard uh, on another blog, um, you know, another priest and, 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 and his wife kind of talking about this very issue. And, you know, she was advocating... Um, using, you know, live streaming morning prayer and, and kind of going, you know, be, because that that's something that everybody can participate in with, you know, even if it's a little bit virtual, it's, it's a, it's more of a real participation that way than with communion sure. and his, his, um, reasoning for not advocating that at least at the time of that podcast was he didn't want to do something completely different for his parishioners, he wanted it to be as similar as to what they would get when they can't be there. Hmm. And I'm not sure what to think about that. Um, you know, part of me says, well, it's already different. You might as well embrace the differentness. But part of me says, yeah, okay, I understand as a pastor, you know, not wanting to give your people, you know, mental whiplash or cognitive dissonance or something. Right. I mean, I mean, my, my take is, I mean, I, it seems like a very pastoral call. I mean, it, it, I think some of there are sort of the no-no, no-go zones on various sides here. But within that, I think there's a lot of room for prudential judgment. You know, we, we need uh, we need bishops and priests to and deacons to be exercising wisdom. And, you know, maybe maybe he just knows his congregation that way. Right. Uh, similarly, I've heard people worry that, um, we're gonna, if everyone moves online, they won't want to come back, you know? And, and that, that, uh, that particular claim to me seems unlikely and right. might take, it kind of goes back to the fact that we live in a particularly secularized age. I think that, um, if you've got people waking up early Sunday morning, getting their kids dressed and, you know, yelling or doing whatever they have to do to make, to get them out of the house in one piece and go to a church, drive across town, maybe skip breakfast. Um, and I am, of course, speaking from experience. But mm -hmm. <laughs> and in order to go and be a part of uh, a situation which... Maybe it's terrific. Maybe it's the greatest church in the world and everybody just loves being there. And everybody's welcoming and maybe not, you know, uh, that's not always the case. And, and people will still do what they feel like they need to do because they really believe in it. You know, this is not mm. a, an age that really rewards Christian belief or making sacrifices Sunday morning for something that most people out there in the world don't care about, right? This is, you're not getting any brownie points with your neighbor, your boss or anybody. You're, this is just something you're going to do because you either believe it in it or not. And all this is to say, I think if you're doing that, um, you're not going to change your mind because you found out that you could, you know, 
that there are televangelists. I think you probably already knew that, you know. And something that I'm not sure that um, the folks who are live streaming like us um, at this time understand. And you, you, you look on that, that we, we, we got about 700 views for our first Sunday doing it, which wow. was crazy. And I thought to myself, okay, who are all these people? Okay, yeah, some of it's <laughs> some of it's our folks. I, I know that some of it was other Anglicans who saw somebody doing something. They wanted to figure out, okay, how do they do it so I can mm. compare it to how I'm doing it? I mean, there was sure. a lot of that. We all did that. But when you really dig in the metrics, um, the vast majority of any of those views are under 30 seconds. Right. I mean, one of them might have been like me if you're on a different time zone, right? Like I <laughs> I see yeah, live yeah. streams all the time and I'll be like, what's this? Oh, it's, you know, I am not in a position to sit through a church service. Online right. right There's a lot so, of that. Yeah. So that's probably makes a blip, doesn't it? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, and at least I can say for hours this past Sunday, um, it was about five to 10 percent watched more than a minute um hmm. well no more more there was i'm, not, I'm sorry five to ten percent and i and i couldn't get the exact numbers watched the whole thing um which coincidentally is about a normal church service oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah so it all adds up doesn't it that's yeah it's, it's it, yeah it's it's kind of so yeah i mean i, I don't think i don't think you know the folks that think this is a, a novel new way of of reaching unbelievers or you know new people who are going to start tithing to your church it's just not I and mean, that, right. that's just not the case that's that's interesting um you know i i have heard people say and people who frankly have been doing live streams for a long time that some people have checked out their live stream before they've joined the church and that sounds plausible to me um, what I don't think you're going to get is a lot of sort of like perm permanent uh, couch sitting members. You know, I just right. don't think I don't think Anglicanism is moving. I mean, it's just such a tactile, uh, you know, liturgical, sacramental. Uh, all those things are so hardwired into the heart of what um, the Anglican uh, sort of understanding of Christianity is that you're it just doesn't make sense i don't i think we're maybe worrying a little too much but I, yeah. it's understandable because we're all worried about plenty right now so <laughs> isn't uh, that hey, the truth yeah father what about private mass uh that's sort of you know the under the idea of hearing mass or um you know i i have had uh anglican clergy friends say that they they're doing private masses now on on behalf of uh, on behalf of their congregations, um, regardless of how the uh, angel who guards each church is able to gather the prayers of the scattered, um, what what are your thoughts? Is um, not not a big fan. Um, you know the the, <laughs> the the rubrics are pretty clear um, in, in in the in the at least the classical prayer books where. Um, you ought to, it usually goes something like this. Okay, if you can eat, you shouldn't have communion unless you can have at least 20. Well, um, or at least two or three, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I mean, we, 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 we definitely have this. Okay, we're going to, you know, a normative service ought to be 
a, a, a congregation, but in a pinch, you can do a very minimal congregation, but there has to be a congregation um, right. of some sort. And, you know, so what we've done, you know, again, this is just speaking from our own, our own context here. Um, after we turn the camera off after um, morning prayer, um, those of us who did come to, to do the morning prayer service will do, will do communion. Um, I don't think it's ideal. Um, even that, cause that's, that's technically not private communion. Right. Um, it, you know, meets the two or three there with you. Uh, but at the same time, it's okay. Who, who gets to participate? Well, only those who are, you know, part of the staff, which is not, which is not good. That's not good at all. Sure. Not ideal. And, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, again, we have a least worse situation. Um, you know, I, I read I read some some priests kind of justifying saying, well, I'm, I'm not ever alone. I'm also, you know, I'm in the company of the angels and the saints and, and, you know, archangels and all that. Yeah, but that's not really what the rubric meant. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. kind of rescuing the text from itself. Uh, and, and and there's a reason for the rubric, which was um, that tendency for clericalism. Right. And, and my my fear is that there is a bit of that even in the way that we're we're doing it here. Um, I think if I was completely by myself, well, I know if I was completely by myself, I wouldn't do it. And probably it might even be better if we just fasted with the congregation. Hmm. Maybe. Once again, anyone who's listening from Father Isaac's uh, congregation... Nothing has been decided here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think my take on that is I think there is a difference uh, in intention between this is all all who were able to gather, but it's still those who are gathered sharing a meal versus uh, Anglican clergy friends who have very explicitly said, I am going to celebrate Mass. And of course, these folks generally use the M word more than any other. Uh, And it's going to be on behalf of and for the benefit of the rest of everyone, which is exactly 100% explicitly what the reformers did not want, you know. Uh, And... And obviously, if it's you and your Eucharistic minister, that's it's same difference, right? I mean, the right. idea the, <laughs> that was probably always the case in the Middle Ages, anyways. You know, very very seldom would you have you know a priest celebrating who didn't have someone helping out. Um, but that you know that that does not really change anything. And you know, my my big my biggest. Uh, you know, as far as that specific no-no area in my is at least according to the formularies, we we can say um, my biggest gripe about it is we have within our wheelhouse, you know, uh, page three <laughs> in ni- the nineteen twenty-eight <laughs> Book of Common Prayer, uh, a a solution to this. So why can't we use this situation? You know, it's not only just the fact that I think this other thing is probably inappropriate, but why are we so uh, negligent of our own tradition such that we can't, it's not obvious that the, the solution here is um, 
an embodied worship experience with your family um, or whoever you can, you know, get to pray with you uh, and, and not try to sort of lean into some sort of areas that Ang- the Anglican Church has avoided for a reason. Um, go Just ahead. liturgically, I find it very interesting. Um, you know, once upon a time, it was not uncommon on Sunday mornings in, in Anglican circles to have morning prayer, litany, and anti-communion. Basically, in the 1662, that would have mm-hmm. been the communion service through the prayers of the people, the prayer for the church militant, um, omitting a few words um, regarding the offertory or the you know the bringing of the oblations and whatnot, um, and then concluding with a blessing. That was very typical for a Sunday morning. And, um, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out the best way to use anti-communion with the 28. Um, the rubrics are a little bit different and makes things a little... The, the, the 1662 obviously saw that as a norm a lot better than the 28. Hmm. But here's the thing that I find very interesting. Um, modern liturgies don't even have provision for it. Huh. There's no provision for anti-communion, for example, in the 2019. And I'm not sure if that's because there is this kind of in the the post-liturgical movement approach, there is this hard line between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table so that you end up doing things like taking the marriage service as if it was anti-communion or the burial service as if it was anti-communion. That's very common in those kinds of liturgies. Sure. Um, Or if it's just the idea of doing anti-communion just doesn't just doesn't make sense in that I mean in in that in that context I don't I don't quite get it but I thought that was very interesting yeah excellent point um say isn't father Ben Jeffries wasn't he on the uh the liturgical guidance uh board for the 2019 I believe so I don't recall what his what his role was specifically but yeah he was he was part of the board yeah Hmm. Okay, well, Father Jeffries, if you're listening, we're calling you out. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to anti-communion, huh? So, uh, no, I think that's that's an excellent point. And uh, once again, it leans into our historical uh, understanding as a church of the liturgy and says, you know, here was the provision. but it, and And maybe, again, I think this is sort of, Another weakness of the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, which is that I think in order to execute a a historic Anglican liturgy, you have to pull out your 1662 as a guide to the 2019. Right. You know, you can't, it's not a self-sufficient book if you want to do traditional Anglican liturgics. Um, It doesn't. You know, it, it you have to sort of lean on these older standards to get by. And I just find that, you know, again, this is not me uh, beating up on the 2019. If you've got it and you love it, good for you. Uh, but uh, it, I just think that, you know, and to some extent, uh, the, the 1928, uh, and this is, you know, someone like Dr. 
the late Dr. Toon, who we are a big fan of on this podcast, has said the 1928 is best understood uh, through the lens of the 1662. And so I don't mind sort of the 1662 having to play this role of uh, the standard bearer for what comes next, but it does seem like the 1928 is also pretty self-sufficient. I mean, say, say the black and, and do the red, as it were, um, although the rubrics aren't usually in red uh, anymore. Uh, <laughs> usually we'll get you by. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. No, that's that's totally true. The The only time that I've had to... I mean, I, I know the 28 very, very well because that's what we use. That, and that's what I was using personally before that. Um, I actually prefer in many ways the 1662, but it was one of those things like, hey, I'm, I'm an American. I ought to use the American prayer book. Right. Um, that, that was kind of my own reasoning at any rate. But um, the only times I end up having to go to the 1662 is if there is a, a rubric that is a little bit ambiguous or a little bit wonky, like like the anti-communion, um, where it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So like anti-communion in the 28, um, technically it ends with the gospel, and it seems to be kind of when there's no sermon or communion. Um, but if you kind of string other rubrics together, you see how it can it can kind of make sense when there's no communion, but there is a sermon and it's a priest or whatever, kind of in the, the 1662 way. But you do end up having to play connect the dots in a way that isn't always intuitive. Um, for a couple of things, for a couple of things, but for the most part, it's it's pretty much very straightforward. Well, you know, maybe the maybe the lesson in all that is that if you're going to be, you know, ministering in an Anglican context, don't uh, let the dust gather on your 1662, no matter where you're at. That's so. probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. Interesting. Well, I think uh, we've. We've uh, covered the subject well, and of course, um, we'd love to hear from our listeners any pushback or agreement, um, especially nice things. We love to hear nice things, but we understand <laughs> that we are sometimes both miserable and offensive, so uh, the other is, is fine, too. But uh, yeah, Father, hopefully next time we'll be able to get Andrew back on. I know that he's a fan favorite. So, <laughs> so uh, it'd be great if we could all three be, be back in the saddle here, the three amigos, uh, or the miserable offenders. Sorry, we're not doing a brand <laughs> switch. That's um, right. But uh, stay tuned. So we, we'd like to uh, up our frequency to more than once a quarter. And um, so hopefully this will be the beginning of, of a, a new stretch. But all that being said, uh, I will, this is Jesse Nigro. I will catch you next time. God bless. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today the glory of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. 
Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com